Do you think that there are a lot of misconceptions out there about you? Yeah, definitely. I think uh, people have read too much into a stage character, you know, and, and they, they just have it all screwed up in their heads, you know. And that's why I could continue, because I know what I'm doing. You know, I know all of my aim is just to make people laugh and have a good time. Whether it's doing that kind of humor or doing a film like Ford Failing, it's just to make people laugh. And, and most of them will see that once they see this movie. Does it bother you at all, like for this film? This film is a lot different than what your stage show is, but you already have these groups going out and like they've defaced a couple of billboards. Yeah. Do you worry about selling this picture? No, this, this movie's a hit. Yeah. This movie's a hit. I knew that when we were shooting it. everybody to a brand new episode of not a bomb podcast this is the podcast where we go back and talk about movies that bombed at the theater or maybe the critics just didn't like boy do we have a doozy for you brad this is episode 150 so we we picked something special we did uh a reoccurring impression i think i do very <laughs> poorly on this podcast is andrew dice clay in a 1990 troy andrew dice clay was ooh, Arguably the biggest comedian in the world, and he started a film. And yeah. That film was The Avengers of Ford Fairlane. So we decided to finally tackle this one. Yeah. Also, it's, it's crazy. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Also, we decided, because you had never seen it, uh, we'll tack on a little bit of Brain Smasher, the love story a- after after that. So Which was which was the film he did after Ford Fairlane, three years yeah. later. Yeah. 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 yeah, a lot changed for him in three years. It, it this this buckles my mind. So I I was thinking about this the other day. Actors who actually started their career as stand up comedians. I mean, the list is pretty long and it's pretty mm-hmm. prestigious, right? So, what Steve Martin, Richard Pryor, Eddie Murphy, Billy Crystal. Uh, I mean, I mean, these guys have gone on to just either get nominated for Academy Awards. Adam Sandler. Adam Sandler's another one. Uh, yeah. Yes. And and when we talk about Andrew Dice Clay, none of them happened to achieve what he did in the 90s, which is crazy to me. Yeah, he uh, was the first comedian to sell out Madison Square Garden. Two consecutive nights in a row. You guess what he's selling out now, Troy? Casinos. The fucking Olive Garden. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) Who wants breadsticks? (laughs) We we have two films to talk about, so I figure, yeah, just we'll we'll go ahead and put the uh, disclaimer up front. It's it's going to be <laughs> the Olive, sorry, the Olive Garden. I should laugh I, at my own joke, but I found that really funny. That was great. That was great. Um, no, this is this is uh, this is going to be two hours of Brad doing this crappy impersonation. <laughs> no, I'm well, kidding. it's actually quite good. To be fair, yeah, I was uh, kind of showing off. Uh, over the past few days and I woke up this morning and my throat really hurt from doing it. So I won't be uh, as enthusiastic to do it as much as I once thought. <clears throat> oh, I've been bracing honest. myself all day. Oh uh, like, yeah. Okay. I'm still going to, still going to do it, but okay. it might be, 
It might be like a seven out of 10. It won't be the 10 out of 10 that it usually is. All right. All right. Well, let's start with you. I mean, usually go through the numbers. Uh, this, this one came out in 1990 and, uh, it, it didn't do so well, which was, was kind of crazy considering how popular he was at that time. Yeah. Like we said, he was selling out Madison square garden. I think like two weeks after this came out or before this came out, he mm-hmm. was, you know, the biggest comedian in the, in the, in the entire world. Um, this is a summer blockbuster release. So we have June 11th, 1990 with a reported budget of $20 million. I will note that is, uh, I think originally higher than the initial budget. Um, we'll get into it a little bit later, but guess what? I don't think Andrew Dice Clay got along with a lot of people. So there was a little bit of, uh, overshoots and things like that. So, yeah. uh, it is total box office run. It makes $21.4 million. So just essentially breaks even on its production run. It is, um, released along. Oh, I'm oh, sorry. Uh, opening weekend. It makes $6.34 million and that's good enough for fifth place. And, uh, it comes, uh, gets beat by films like die hard Two, which, which we'll, ta- we'll talk about. Yes. <laughs> which, which is uh, crazy. Yeah. Uh, so, and then Ghost, Days of Thunder, Tom Cruise. Yay. And The Jungle Book, the 1990 re release. Also, want to mention that Quick Change, the seventh film that week, uh, was another previous episode that we did. So, there you go. Awesome. Now, I'm assuming you didn't see this in the movie theater. I, I did not. Okay. When we talk about Andrew Dice Clay, we'll, we'll, we'll get into how I came about this film. Um, critically, the, the adventures of Ford Fairlane comes in at a 25% with the critics. Doesn't surprise that's with, me at all. That's with uh, 32 reviews and a 67 with the audience. So audience much higher. Okay. Films you could have seen July of 1990. We have Die Hard 2, Jetsons the movie, Ghost, Quick Change, Arachnophobia, Maniac Cop 2, the Freshman, Navy Seals, uh, Presumed Innocent, and Problem Child. I think I saw every one of those in the movie theater. That was actually a good month for films. I love Narachnophobia, uh, Problem Child. I've seen a bunch. Die Hard 2, obviously. Quick change we did for the uh, show. So yeah, a lot of cool a lot of cool releases there. Yeah, and this this is one where uh, the critics were pretty harsh to it. Um, we, we generally talk about like Roger Ebert around this time period. He did not like this film. I think he liked Andrew Dice Clay as an actor, but really hated the movie. Yeah, he thought he could have done a lot better if he just got away from the stick. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I guess let's talk about the people who made the film. Um, we, we've we got some f- similar or familiar names that have come up in the show from the past. Let's start with the director, Rennie Harlan. So back, way back, episode 40... Man, can you believe we're at mm. 150? Genius. Ah, this is crazy. So episode 40, we talked about a little film called Cutthroat Island from 1995. Which, oh, that's right. He did direct Cutthroat Island. Yes. Jesus. I, I is liked, he a three-timer on this now? He might be, yeah. I, I liked it. You did not like Cutthroat Island, if I remember correctly. That is true. I did not like Cutthroat Island. Uh, so what's interesting about this is Rainy Harlan had two films come out at the same month. One was this one, and then the other one was Die Hard 2, uh, which can you think of that happening 
in uh, in cinema again. I, I can't remember an instance it's where a director very rare, very rare had two films um, come out in the same month. Yeah, yeah. If a listener knows another instance where a director had two separate films come out in the same month, I'm really curious. I mean, didn't they come out on the same? Really close. I don't know if it was the same weekend, but one I I, I knew. It had to be within 30 days. It, oh, it no, it was, it, they were like eight days apart. So a week. Okay. Uh, and, and one of the things that we talk about on the show is, you know, there, there are some signs within a film that you can pick up on that will let you know, hey, there, there might be some problems or it's a telltale sign that something might bomb. One of those is the number of people that are involved in the screenplay process or the story process. This one's pretty interesting. And again, you're going to hear some familiar names. So the screenplay was written by Daniel Waters. That name should be familiar because we just talked about a film that he worked on that would come out a year later called Hudson Hawk. Ah, yeah. Yes. One of my favorites. Brad's uh, not, mm. not too keen on that one. But then you got a bunch of other names that get a screenplay slash story credit like James Cape, who not not a lot of stuff there, but nope. he worked like as, as an example. Here's here's an example of his resume: two episodes of Freddy's Nightmares, the TV show from the late '80s, right? Um, and a person that we've talked about before, which Rooney Harlan has a connection to Nightmare on Elm Street because he directed four. Was it four Dream Warriors? Yeah, one, three or four, one of those. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. Oh, Dream Warriors was three, right? Okay, so no Dream Master. Sorry, the Dream Master. So four. Four. Okay. Yeah. Uh, David Arnott uh, did a screenplay story credit for this. We talked about him when we discussed The Last Action Hero because he worked on that in 1993 for a screenplay credit. Mm-hmm. And Rex. Got a lot of reoccurring people this episode. Yeah. Rex Weiner was credited with characters. And to give you a sample of what he was doing the year before, he worked on Silent Night, Deadly Night 3, Better Watch Out. <laughs> I've never seen any of those films, I don't think. <laughs> I think you're okay. Okay, good. Uh, the only other thing I want to talk about in kind of behind the camera is the score. So the soundtrack actually did okay. There was a top 40 song from, um, was it Billy Idol? Uh, Billy Idol. Rock the Cradle of Love or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the actual score for the film was done by a Swiss electronic music band called yellow. Now I think everybody would know yellow from one song and it came out in the mid eighties and it was called, Oh yeah. Came out in 1985. The reason why everybody would know that song is it was used heavily in a bunch of films. So as an example, Ferris Bueller's day off, it's in there. Uh, the secret of my success, Uncle Buck. It showed up in uh, episodes of The Simpsons. Is it the bow bow? Chicka chicka. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There that you one. go. <laughs> so that, that's yeah, that's the song. And um, so the guys who made that song actually we were spot on. I hope we don't get a copyright strike because we were spot on with that, dude. Yeah, we could move to Switzerland, get all the Swedish Swedish fish we want, and start a rock band. That would be awesome. <laughs> Uh, do yeah, do it's called Yellow by Mouth, and we just do all their songs with our mouths. Yeah. <laughs> hey, gay, gay. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I guess the person we should really be talking about is Andrew Dice Clay. So he was <laughs> he was born Andrew Clay Silverstein, right? So he plays the the character of Ford Fairlane. 
to give everybody a little bit of history lesson. So this is how Mr. Silverstein comes on the scene. In the 70s, he was mainly doing impressions, which included a character named the Dice Man. Now, the Dice Man was based on Jerry Lewis as Buddy Love from the film The Nutty Professor, who ended up transforming into John Travolta in Greece. So I guess he would go on stage with like his John Travolta costume underneath the, you know, this other outfit and he would transform, do all these impressions. So he ended up taking this dice man persona and rose to fame in the eighties with deliberately offensive comedy sets, almost transgressive comedy. If, if you want to yeah. label it. Right. And I think it's important to point out that, uh, that was the whole purpose. Like yeah. you were never supposed to like Andrew Dice Clay. I think that was the whole, the like the persona of Dice Man and Andrew Dice Clay was someone that you kind of hated. Yeah, and you, I think you, people missed the point of that. Yeah. You weren't supposed to emulate him. Yeah. He, he was doing a character of probably the most misogynistic human being that walks the planet. Mm-hmm. And and I think everybody remembers his set specifically for the dirty nursery rhymes, right? Nur- nursery rhymes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he got into a. What's what's curious is it worked. It it was so successful. Everybody at this time period just uh, just gravitated to it so much so that we talked about it in ninety. He became in nineteen ninety. He became the first stand up comedian to sell out Mad- to sell out Madison Square Garden for two consecutive nights. It had never been done before, but he did that. But around that same time period, he also had a lot of controversy following him. So in 1989, the year before, he received a lifetime ban from MTV for a stand-up set during the MTV Video Music Awards because people are upset that he he was doing his Dice Man routine, right? Mm-hmm. MTV said, nope, you're never coming back. Now, when people talk about that year, all they remember is Andrew Dice Clay from the MTV. You couldn't sit here and tell me who won video of the year or anything that year. But in 89, you remembered Andrew Dice Clay because he got banned. Mm-hmm. In 1990. That was a lifetime ban, but it was lifted sometime in 2000. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. In 1990, he was also set to appear on Saturday Night Live. And uh, actress Nora Dunn refused to appear with Clay and boycotted the show. She was soon followed by musical guest Sinead O'Connor, which is kind of <laughs> funny to me. Um, but here, here's the thing. So that's his, that's a stand-up comedy, right? He was actually cutting his teeth in these bit roles and parts, both on television and in film. So while he's doing these stand-up routines, he's also starting to create this uh, resume of acting credits. And he gets his first gig in 1982 for a film called Wacko. But then also that same year, he shows up in an episode of MASH, which totally blew my mind. Two episodes of different strokes, um, you know, around 82, 83. He's in Pretty in Pink in 86 as a bouncer. Uh, <laughs> has a small bit part in this comedy from 87 called Amazon Women on the Moon. Has a larger part in a comedy from 1988 called casual sex. He plays a character Vinny in there. 
Um, that's yeah, with Leah Thompson. Yeah, that's that's actually a pretty good film, and I, I got to say, he's really good in it. He is actually really good in that. He's one. fantastic. Uh, from eighty six to eighty eight, he's in seventeen episodes of Crime Story, and and is uh, doing this whole dramatic role. Then in nineteen ninety, he does the Adventures of Ford Fairlane. We'll we'll talk about some of his follow up stuff after that. But then twenty thirteen, he's in a Woody Allen film, Blue Jasmine. In 2015, he shows up, I think, on the final season of Entourage and gets a lot of acclaim for that. Uh Showtime gives him his own series that ran, I think, for a couple of seasons from 2016 to 2017. Yeah, called Dice. Uh, Yeah, Dice. And uh, then shows up in a critically acclaimed film called A Star is Born 2018. Plays, I think, Lady Gaga's father. Yeah, Did you see that coming? Did you know he was in that? No, had no clue. I had no clue either. Blew my so mind. As soon as, as soon as I, I see like, him, I'm like, oh my God, he's so good in it. Uh, and I mean, he's still acting and he's still doing stand up. Most recently, he was in the Pam and Tommy uh, series. He was three episodes for that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, he's he's got this acting career. And what's crazy to me is he gets a lot of accolades for some of the parts that he's done. But then off to the side, He's he's essentially playing this like um, Brooklyn loudmouth who thinks he's so super slick, but ends up being this like leather clad idiot doing these yeah. dirty nursing rhymes. Yeah, and, and 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 I got to start to think about stand up comedy and playing bits on stage because <clears throat> we think about comedy now and it's in a weird position. But like I, I was thinking about like the the part in 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 Django Unchained where Leonardo DiCaprio is saying all this stuff to Jamie Foxx and his wife about, you know, being black and slave and all this stuff. We never assume in real life that Leonardo DiCaprio would say that because he's acting. You put a comedian on stage, Dave Chappelle, um, Andrew Dice Clay, and they say things to get people to laugh and, automatically people start pointing the finger and saying, well, Dave Chappelle is transphobic and Andrew Dice Clay is homophobic. And I I don't necessarily agree with that because they're on stage, right? Like they're playing parts. Um, It could be problematic and it could be transgressive and it could be trying to make people feel unfunny. But do I think the person Andrew Dice Clay and the character of Andrew Dice Clay are two different people. Of course. Um, and I think people need to realize that when it comes to, to comedy, like, like you said, his Andrew Dice Clay character on stage is a guy who is not someone who is like who you should strive to be. It's a guy who thinks he's way better than he really is. Um, and I, I, it's just, it got me thinking because he is, would be so problematic uh, if he was on stage today doing his bits. Yeah, if you that, if you go back, I mean, YouTube has tons of Andrew Dice Clay material. I mean, I listened I listened to the No Apologies cassette. I had gotten it from a friend, and I mean, the first fifteen minutes is just about getting a blowjob. <laughs> and I, I was listening to this as a eleven or twelve year old kid, and we would you know trade tapes back because I would we were trying to get. We got, I got Adam Sandler's, they're all going to laugh at you and Andrew Dice Clay's no apologies. And I listened to them before I went to bed pretty much every night, but I was just thinking about, 
you do that today and you're done. You're done. But he's essentially playing a character. I just, I never could understand the disconnect people had when they see an actor say something and do something. They never assume that's the real, they would do that in real life. But you hear a, a comedian say that and you're like, oh, that's obviously because it's their, their stand up. They would say that in real life. I, I just, I don't know. Do you get what I'm saying? Like, I, I feel like I'm. I do. I mean, I, I think it raises a bunch of questions, right? So the the first question that comes to mind is do comedians who do this type of, it, it's not really me, but it's a persona. Mm-hmm. Does the comedy really work? I mean, if you take a step back and go, why do it? If, and, and here's the thing. I think he was so good at it. I don't uh, fault anybody who looks at that and says, oh, he really believes those things. Mm-hmm. Or he is that arrogant. Because it would be a hard distinction if you go back and look at his comedy. Or, you know, even look at some of the stand-up that he did. Because, he, you know, he landed on HBO and stuff like that. And if, if you watch some of that material, it would be very easy for somebody to come along and go, oh, I want to say those things because it's cool or I want to emulate that because it's cool. So I, I guess it comes down to like, should people be upset? Is, is transgressive comedy of that nature, I mean, should it be around? Well, I, it's the people who started fight clubs after they saw fight club. They missed the whole point. <laughs> True. I guess it's with anything. I I don't know. I, I feel like our society is really coddled right now. It's hypersensitive and it is, I I mean, you hear all these stories from comedians who say that, uh, I, I, I think the funniest comparison I heard was it used to be, you would go to college campuses because you could push the boundaries there in terms of three, you know, free thought, free speech, and everything else. Now you're getting protested. And now you 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 stay away from those places like the plague because everybody is triggered um, by just the slightest dark comedic element, right? So, but, but I'm going to play devil's advocate real quick and sure. just say because the whole world has gotten really fucking dark and dangerous for a lot of people, and sometimes comedy is like supposed to be escapism. And then you go and you hear transphobic things and homophobic things. And then you see all this legislation about being anti-trans and racism and all this stuff in our society. It's, it's hard to separate those two, like what's comedy and what's not. Cause at, at, at one point in time, you, you knew what, what was comedy, what was funny. Now it's like, Oh, that's in legislation now. Rights are being taken away. Uh, you know what I'm saying? Like, oh, I, it, I don't disagree. I, I yeah. think you've got a bipartisan society and extremists mm-hmm. that make it worse for that type of comedy. But I, I mean, I would also say that um, if you actually look at some of the things that are coming out of college campuses in terms of how they, uh, the students, more than the administration are coming out and clamping down on speech. I I find that very ironic. So I don't, I don't think you should ever have anything that's hate speech or anything of that nature. Don't, don't get me wrong, but I don't mind somebody coming to the table and just saying, can we question some of the things that we're doing in terms of an extremist perspective? And, and, you know, 
actually examine that. And I don't think that happens anymore, either in college or in the real world, right? So to be a comedian seems to me like the hardest thing possible. I mean, what, what are you going to do? Of, on top of just having to make people laugh too. Like yeah, that's- but, you know, that's why I think comedians right now are probably some of the most talented people that are that are super successful is if they can take a topic and even take a sensitive topic and make you laugh about it. I mean, that's that's real talent right now. Mm-hmm. But I still think it's a deadly combination of, to your point, we live in a society of extremists. And then on top of that, you live in a society with a hypersensitive group. Those two things don't mix well at all. So it, it is very much that whole whatever, you know, whatever offends them, they're going to go after you and not even think twice about it. And so it very it's very hard to make transgressive art in 2023, right? I mean, that's a fair statement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. So uh, I, I think it's a unique time period. And I'll, I'll be the first to say, as a comedian, I was never a huge fan of Andrew Dice Clay, but I was a huge fan of um, him in movies. Oh, okay. So between Ford Fairlane, casual sex, and just his screen persona, I always thought he was a really good actor. And I like the Dice Man persona within the context of a film because it was dialed back a little bit. Yeah, so you're a little bit older than me. When I was 10 to 15, I mean, this guy was born and bred for the 12-year-old kid, right? I, I, oh, sure. He yeah. was specifically created for a 12-year-old boy. Hey, we knew about him in high school. We were listening to his albums in high school and stuff like that before he hit the you know films. Yeah, he's got a stick, right? And if it doesn't yeah. work for you, he doesn't really do much outside of that. Like, I've seen some of his stuff where he's doing impressions of Sylvester Sloan and, and a bunch of other stuff. But for the most part, you're getting that misogynistic persona of basically a guy from New York. It is. And it's it, I, the best way to, to describe it. We keep using this term over and over again. It's, it's transgressive, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It's supposed to be a parody of the just most extreme persona. And you are as an audience member supposed to be laughing at him more than anything, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Okay. Well, let's talk about some of the other people. I, I just want to list some names because this this movie is stacked with some it talent. It does have an amazing cast. Like you'll watch this and character after character will show up and and it is it is fascinating to see. Yeah, I think I think it's stacked on two levels, right? So one from an actor or actress. So let's start there. You get Lauren Holly as Jazz. Priscilla Presley. Okay, can we just pause for a second? Sure. Yes. Lauren Holly does not get the praise that she deserves for this 10 film. Ten out of ten for any film. Ten oh, out of yeah, 10. yeah, yeah. She's amazing. I think she's amazing in this film. We'll talk about that. We'll, we'll spend some time on the performances. I just want to talk about like who's in this thing. Also, she was also in Livewire too. So, <laughs> okay. Yes. All right. There you go. Uh, Priscilla Presley as Colleen Sutton. We get Maddie Corman as Zuzu Petals. Uh, no, this fucking kid, this fucking kid again, <laughs> Gilbert Gottfried as Johnny crunch. No, you skipped it. What? You gotta, we gotta do it. I'm Brave saving, it. I'm saving it for the end. Okay. Chill dude. Let me do my job. I know I got head. some PTSD because of, yeah, shut up. Yeah. Um, Gilbert Gottfried as Johnny crunch. David Patrick Kelly shows up as Sam. 
When you see his face, you'll go, oh, that's the guy from Warriors. From the Warriors, yep. Yep. Robert England, Freddy Krueger himself, as Smiley. Ed O'Neill, <laughs> which my, I just saying his name and thinking about this movie puts a smile on my face, as Lieutenant Amos. And uh, the one that you're trying to have a hissy fit over, Brandon Call, your favorite actor mm-hmm. as the kid. We, we spent some time talking about him when we, when we discussed 1989's Blind Fury. Yeah, so he essentially walks off the set of, well, it was four years earlier than this, but walks off the set of Blind Fury and comes onto this set and basically saying, playing the same annoying kid. God, he's a shithole kid. (laughs) I'm going to find a Brandon Call fan club t-shirt in your size and send it to you. Oh, I'm sure there was. I'm sure he was on Teen Beat or whatever that was called. Is there a, oh my God, is there a Teen Beat issue for Brandon Call? There has to be. There has to be. Oh, I'm going to find that, man. (laughs) (laughs) That's your Christmas present. Oh my God, that's the greatest thing ever. All right. So outside of these amazing actors like Brandon Call, we get some famous musicians in the film. So the big heavy in the movie uh, Julian Grendel is actually played by Wayne Newton, but you also get Morris Day as Don Cleveland, Vince Neal from Motley Crue as Bobby Black, Sheila E. Uh, doesn't really have any dialogue, but she's in the back as a club singer. She's playing the drums. Playing drums. Yep. Tone Loke as Slam, and then you have the band that Vince Neal is fronting called the Black Plague. So the bassist is Phil Susan, uh, Susan, I think, from Ozzy Osbourne. Uh, he was his bassist. Randy Castillo is Ozzy Osbourne's drummer. And then the lead guitarist is Carlos Cavazzo, who was the guitarist for Quiet Riot. So, I mean, there's some, there's some musical pedigree within this film, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's actually kind of cool to see the came. Some of them are like glorified cameo, like cameos, cameos, because like Vince Neil is in it for spoiler alert, like thirty seconds. Has an amazing death scene. <laughs> yeah, Tone Loke, you know, comes and goes. Um, so yeah, Kurt Loder is also in this for a short minute. Oh, from so, MTV. Yeah, I mean yeah. Wayne Wayne Newton and Morris Day have the most dialogue yeah. uh, from that perspective. So a couple of things on production and development. I had no idea about this. So I found it out uh, over the weekend. I thought it was really cool. Howard Stern was originally considered for the role of Johnny Crunch, which was played by Gilbert Gottfried. Billy Idol was originally supposed to play the Vince Neil role. And David Bowie was approached to play Wayne Newton's role. David Oof. Bowie was supposed to be the heavy. Yeah. Better movie. Oh, I don't I, think so. Wayne Newton's amazing. Uh, this that, thing won some awards. Can you guess what awards it won? <laughs> I'm going to guess they were some some Razzies. Yes, the Golden some Raspberry. Golden Raspberries, yep. Golden let's, Raspberry Awards. Let's hear them. All right, so it was nominated for Worst Picture, Worst Director, Worst Actor, Worst Supporting Actor to Gilbert Gottfried and uh, Wayne Newton. It got nominated for Worst Screenplay as well. It won Worst Picture, uh, which went to Joel Silver and Steve Perry. So those are two names that have that pop up quite a bit. We've talked about Joel Silver before. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's he's pretty much the 80s uh, action. He's responsible for all the great 80s action films, right? Correct. Um, it won Worst Actor for Andrew Dice Clay, and it won Worst hey, Screenplay. Second, who <laughs> 
Now, th- this is kind of ironic. So Andrew Dice Clay obviously is banned from MTV. However, at the MTV Video Music Awards for that year, Cradle of Love by Billy Idol, which was the big song that came out of the soundtrack, did win for best video from a film. <laughs> so I thought that was kind of ironic. Uh, so I, I, just a question for you. It's 1990. You've got probably one of the biggest stand-up comics ever. I mean, his albums are doing well. He's selling out Madison Square Garden. He has a movie coming out. He thinks it's going to be a huge hit. I think everybody thought it was going to do like really well, but it didn't. Why? Well, I I think sometimes people assume because someone is controversial and popular that people will flock to see them do other things for rather than what they're known for. You know, like everyone watched Michael Jordan play baseball for a little bit. And then they're like, Hey, this is actually kind of sad. We're going <laughs> to go back and watch the NBA. Um, and, and so he was really, really controversial at the time. And then can you imagine you're going to take your date to a movie called the adventures of Ford Fairlane starring Andrew Dice Clay. And they're like that guy, I have to sit here for a hundred minutes and listen to this guy and I can't go anywhere. No, thank you. So I think that's a hard sell as like a date movie. Um, I mean, it also came after the sequel to one of the greatest, if not the greatest action film of all time. I mean, Die Hard 2, directed by Rennie Harlan, comes out eight days before it. And though it's one of the lesser Die Hards, it's the sequel to Die Hard, which people were waiting for. Um, Even Ghost, I mean, Ghost probably took, like I said, the, 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 the date night audience was going to see ghost. The male audience was probably going to see die hard too. Um, the budget also got inflated because dice and Rennie Harlan apparently didn't like each other very much, which I can, I can see that. Um, did you watch the trailer for this? Yeah, I I don't know if they knew what to yeah, do with it. I mean, this thing tonally is like all over the place. Yeah. And so marketing, you just have to throw your hands up in the air and say, I don't know how we market this thing because sure, it's got Andrew Dice Clay, but he's not doing his, you know, he's not doing stand-up. He's it's trying it's to a tone down. I, I mean, I think yeah. if you watch that trailer and you're an Andrew Dice Clay fan, yeah, you could tell from the trailer you're not getting – the dice man. Yeah. Why are you, you're not, you're not going to go see a neutered Andrew dice clay. If you want to hear him do his stuff, you'll throw on his cassette or what, you know, like that, that's the deal with me. It's like, this was at a time where he hadn't proven him. Like, yeah, like we know that he was a better actor than what shows in Ford Fairlane, but he was, he hadn't proved himself to the mass audience that he could, he could be an actor. He wasn't Eddie Murphy. He wasn't Robin Williams. Like these guys coming from stand up, going to in front of the camera, he just wasn't in that class. Um, and so he wasn't. I, I just don't think people will flock when you change your medium. Like I said, you know, it's kind of like that Michael Jordan analogy. Like it just doesn't work if you put someone else in another arena at, at, at times. Now, I think is he better than I thought he would be as an actor? Of course, like a star, a star is born kind of blew my mind with how, how good he was. But yeah, I, I just don't think, I don't know. There's a lot of factors of the, why this bombed. I think a, 
the marketing for sure. And then just him being someone that most people aren't going to go see because he's hard to swallow. Oh, oh. <laughs> uh, I, yeah, I guess I, I was trying to think of like people like Steve Martin when they make their transition. So if you go back and listen to the Steve Martin comedy albums, when he was doing stand up comedy and then look at sort of his bit, his first big hit might've been what the jerk mm-hmm. yep. and the comedy of Steve Martin versus the comedy in the jerk is very similar and very close. It translates very well. Translates very well. You, you see Steve Martin, you, you see what you're getting it. Um, and I, I think it was marketed very well. I see the a little dice- bit more wholesome too. <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> for, for what? 79. Sure. Um, this one, it's a, it's a total guys film. It, it was built for guys. I think to your point, Die Hard 2 was taking that demographic away uh, for the summer box office because it was pretty crowded. I don't think your true Andrew Dice Clay fans were going to go see this thing two or three times in a row. I, th- I think they went and saw it and then just said, okay, cool. That's yeah. enough, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, for Midwestern audiences where your movie tickets are sold, I, I, don't, I don't think this was... Um, a big deal for it. I mean, I, I kind of think of people like Howard Stern. I mean, isn't Howard Stern more popular on the East coast or like the Metro areas than he is in like the rural spots? I would assume so. Yeah. He's got that New York sort of attitude. Um, I think also this thing was pulled pretty, I think it was only in the theater like three weeks, so it didn't have a long run, but you know, it makes 6 million this first week and then it's down to like three, the next, and then less than a million, you know, so it's not making money by the third, but you know, they're not afraid to pull films at this point in time because there's so much much coming out. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I, I'm sure it fared better on VHS and, and rentals from that perspective. Yeah. Yeah, I I saw it a few times in the theater and, and I got to say the one brilliant piece of marketing about this film is the one sheet advanced poster. They did. The, the Art, Art Deco, Deco style. Oh my, mm-hmm. it's gorgeous. It's up there with the Rocketeer. The one, yeah, the one that looks like the Rocketeer for yeah. some reason. Uh, and, and it's it's beautiful. I, I I have a copy of it and went ahead and displayed it and put it on our socials. Yeah. But it, it's a gorgeous poster. But yeah, this one I'm a little confused on because it should have squeaked out a little bit more profit, but I think it is a combination of it was a death by a thousand cuts. Look yep. at what came out the same time period. Its demographic was being taken by, like you said, everybody was hyped about Die Hard 2. Yeah, I mean, and again, if like this is a $10 million film, I think it's easier to swallow too. Yeah, absolutely. And I think your true hardcore fans may have went to this and just said, yeah, he had a couple of Dice Man jokes in there, but it wasn't as transgressive as what his stand-up routine was going to be. And so uh, it might not have worked for them. And then even for the general audience, I, I do think it it just, <laughs> when I first saw it, I, I immediately thought, ooh, cult movie. I mean, it had cult movie all over it. Mm-hmm. And that's yep. kind of what it's become. Yeah, and, and at the time, you can't spend $20 million on a cult film. You can, but it may not be yeah. financially uh, sound decision, I guess. Well, it's why we're talking <laughs> about it now, yes, yes. Uh, okay. Well, I'm really curious to talk about, um, your revisit on this one. So let's take a quick break. Then we'll jump into the adventures of Ford Fairlane. 
when we finish it with that, we're going to get to this other little film that he did after that one will probably be a shorter conversation just because, well, you'll, you'll find out why, but, uh, stay tuned and, uh, you'll hear our thoughts on this one. Oh boy, that tastes good. Have you been to the refreshment counter? Remember your favorite snack will taste especially good with world famous ice cold Coca-Cola. Rock and Roll High School is an album and a movie. Vince Van Patten is crazy about PJ Souls, but she wants to live a rock and roll fantasy with her favorite group, the Ramones. The new principal tries to stop the music, but the kids rock and wreck the school. Rock and Roll High School, the school where the students rule. Your school could be next. Rated PG, parental guidance suggested. Brad, you, I mean, you, you didn't see it in the theater. How, how did you come about discovering Ford Fairlane? Because this isn't your first watch, right? It is not. Uh, I don't know if I can remember my first, again, I was trying to find his comedy tapes um, as a, you know, a 12 year old, 13 year old kid. Um and I think we just got our hands on this thing because we were big Andrew Dice Clay fans and probably had a sleepover, watched this at, you know, 11 o'clock at night. And, wait, what? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yep, yep. And tickled each other. Yeah. Oh. Um, and so, yeah, I, I just, I don't remember the first time. I know I saw it with a bunch of my friends. And when you're preteen like some of these jokes probably go over your head but i have watched this numerous times as much as i i love dice man i I know he's problematic and again i've made my stand on he's a character and i don't take what he says as gospel or any sort of seriousness I, i you know i find him funny i love that brashness about it this Andrew Dice Clay in the Avengers of Ford Fairlane is a bit toned down. Uh, there are some pretty funny jokes, but I would say for the most part, you're, you're just kind of in it because of, of, of him, but like everyone else around him is really cool too. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know how to really review this one because I, I it's not a great movie. Oh like, posh. If, That's no, you, it is. It, it's a great it, movie. No, it isn't. You're crazy. If you like, if you're going to like being a snapper head. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If you're going to like judge it as a film. Yeah. But it's like critic proof for me because I, I absolutely adore this thing. The Neil and Bob joke gets me every time Uh snapper head gets me every time. Um, all, all of his jokes make me laugh. Um, and, it's got a pretty good there. So, 
this time I noticed a lot of the effects. There's an effect where they're falling down and they <laughs> just show their faces to the camera and they're spinning around. Oh, and I'm my like, head, the, my head. This, yeah, this is the greatest <laughs> thing I've ever seen. Um, yeah, man. Um, it's It's something that I enjoy. And if someone came up to me and said, I, I absolutely hated that film, I could understand. Um, but yeah, I really like it a lot. Um, there's a subplot with Brandon Call about finding his dad. Over a Flintstone uh, ring. <laughs> yeah, Flintstone ring. There's so much going on with this. Um, but I, I, I kind of dig the the mystery, the, the him being the rock and roll detective. Um they say that no less than 47 times in this film. Yeah. You don't want to do uh, a drinking game to oh, this you film. Would be dead. And you then would be if dead. your rule was like, take a shot every time he says rock and roll detective, you, you I mean, yeah. your body would just shut down. Yeah. Um, I just think it's a really fun film. If you like music, I, I think music people will like this. I mean, there's a bit with like a Jimi Hendrix guitar and if it was a real one, Oh boy, I would have a heart attack. Um, Wayne Newton is the bad guy. So that's all you need to know there. He has one of the worst mustaches I've ever seen in my entire life. But yeah, I, I, again, if you were to tell me to grade this film, I don't know what I would give it, but in my heart, it's a 10 out of 10. And so that's what I'm going to stick by. So I'm going to make this statement and you can tell me if I'm just crazy okay it's just the greatest film ever made maybe (laughs) (laughs) i'm not going that far no no uh i i think after my 300th or whatever viewing of it i kind of understand why i like it so much it is a raunchier version of big trouble in little china because i was gonna say it's a raunchier version of ace ventura pet detective but yeah you're also kind of that too. Well, and, and the reason why I do the big trouble in little China is because the Jack Burton character has that same swagger is supposed to be the hero. Um, you know, does everything. And Andrew dice clay sort of takes that to the ninth degree, but yet he's surrounded with more competent people, specifically Lauren Holly, right? Mm-hmm. Which is yep. almost like the Dennis Dunn character. And this movie has so much craziness and it's throwing everything in the kitchen sink at you in terms of subplots, characters, it's all over the place, but it does a really good job of balancing sort of the looniness with the comedy. And I think it looks great. And every time I watch it, it, I just get this itch where I'm like, man, I kind of want to go watch Big Trouble in Little China now. Because I really like these characters who are super confident, but yet uh, come off as a buffoon, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he is very Jack Burton-ish, right? Like they they think they're the hero, but everyone else around them kind of props them up and, and keeps them... From failing. Going, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and this is pretty much a parody of film noir and hard-boiled detective films, which mm-hmm. is a bonus, yep. right? Yep. It's a, it's a hundred percent guy film through and through. And I think it's a lot of fun. And I think, so I, th- I, I really think the secret ingredient here is clay is having a lot of fun, poking fun at himself throughout the entire film. So everybody is making sure the dice man looks cool in every scene, even in how they film it. Right. But I think there's a parody element to everything that works in the film's favor, meaning he's, 
so cool, so obnoxious, so, you know, gets the chicks, uh, that it just, it just becomes a parody and it's a comedy when in fact his assistant is the one that's solving the case and doing everything. And, uh, again, I, I think it's a blast. It's a blast to watch. I giggle through the whole thing, Mm -hmm. but the humor and, and here's what I appreciate about this film. It goes from raunchy to goofy within a split second and almost at every turn. Here is the perfect example. This scene makes me laugh out loud all the time. So it's the, it's the introduction of Colleen Sutton. So she comes in, she wants to hire him to fire, you know, find Zuzu pedals talks about how, how rich she is and she's seen everything. And she has this line, I, I guess he hands her like the, a blender, a used blender with orange juice with in it. Orange juice, yep. Yeah. He doesn't have any glasses. Yeah. And uh, she spills it and he's like, oh, I'm sorry. It's so disgusting. And, and she says, well, nothing disgusts me. At the age of 11, I walked into my father in the Shetland pony. And then she stops and, and she notices he has, you know, morning wood, right? And says, and asks him, well, does that excite you? And his response is, I, I don't know. I never met your father. <laughs> now, that's the raunchy part. It's so funny. But then he apologizes and he's like, oh, Roseanne Barr naked. Oh, see, it's gone. And then the yep. camera turns to the koala bear on the couch. Oh, the koala bear. The koala God bear damn. checks his boner <laughs> to see if it went down. <laughs> Ooh, that koala bear. Uh, Just, but that's the, the type. original Ted. The original. Well, can we say that it's Ted the original is Ted? Based yes. On the, yeah. Uh, yeah. But it's the type of humor you're getting in this film. I think it either works for you. It doesn't like somebody could watch this film and go, that's stupid. I go, I, I get it. I get it. But that scene, do you, if, if someone doesn't like this movie, I don't know if I want to be friends with them. Probably not. No. Uh, but no, I, 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 that's how this movie works, right? Super raunchy to really dumb, goofy joke. And I mean, what, what other film can you have this animatronic koala bear that just steals every scene? Is it animatronic or is it a puppet? I don't, it's amazing <laughs> yeah. what it is. I want, I want one of those. Um, but yeah, I, I, this is a really funny movie. And I think the jokes come at a breakneck pace. And uh, it works because he's so confident in his delivery. And you are getting some of his stand-up within here. It, it doesn't go full tilt, Andrew Dice Clay, right? Yeah. Um, he's smoking throughout this movie. Yeah, you're watching lung cancer <laughs> just develop in his chest. Uh, but, it, I mean, it, it has... It has action. It's a typical Joel Silver action film. Every 15 mm-hmm. minutes, you know, something's going to blow up or they're going to run from something. And the action is pretty decent at best. Yeah. Well, it's, it's filmed well. Oliver Wood was a cinematography, uh, so it looks fantastic. And the Dice Man's not super great at, like, action stuff. He's a little sort of Brooklyn brawlery a little bit. Which I like. I mean, that fits his yeah. persona, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and But and, does it, like, it's not as exciting choreography is probably it could be no. Well, yes, but in each action scene, it's probably more goofy than thrilling, mm-hmm. um, which works in the context of this film because even take, for example, I mean, there's a shootout in a graveyard. <laughs> well, there's a shootout in a car chase, uh, which is in fantastic. Yeah. yeah. In a, in a hearse. And then you get uh, them, being chased around the city and then trying to climb down the side of this building, fighting off Robert England and all these other goons. And uh, to your point, you know, as they're falling, you have this <laughs> cheesy head spinning thing. 
And so they're oh, trying to, hair. yeah, they're trying to interject comedy throughout all these tense sequences. Uh, and again, it, it's a parody of all of those types of films, right? Yeah. I don't know why I never really connected the dots to like neo-noir, but it's, or noir in general, but yeah, it's definitely, definitely it, there. Yeah. It starts with the voiceover. Yeah. Looking, and you know, looking and, for the, your, your dame, if you will. Yeah. Um, well, let's, let's talk about the performances. We can talk about Andrew Dice Clay. I mean, what do you, what do you think about him as an actor within this film? I think like, I think he's got something. Um, the, I don't think you can be that good at stand-up comedy because if you think about stand-up comedy, you're on stage all by yourself. If you don't have something, regardless if you're funny or not, but you have you have to have that something extra. He's got it, and the camera likes him. He is a very atypical star because he's kind of boxy. He's got some of the worst hair I've ever seen in my entire life. He's got hair all um, over his body. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he's, he, when, when his shirt is, you know, unbuttoned, yeah. it looks like he's wearing a Persian rug underneath. Yeah, that, he's maybe. got another shirt on. Yeah, he's yeah. wearing a sweater. Um, but I think he's really good. He's really funny. Um, and I think he plays off people really well. Um, and I think that just comes from being naturally funny. I, I'm really surprised at how good he is, to be honest with you. And I think that's why. I go back to this so not so often, but I've gone back to this a few times because he's really good in it. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, he is that raunchier version of Jack Burton and he does it so well. I think he is making fun of himself quite a few times, uh, but there there's always, he sneaks in these scenes every once in a while with a little bit of emotion Especially, you know, when he's talking with um, Lauren Holly's character, Jazz. Jazz, yeah. Yeah, so... Uh, they do and, have moments. They have a, quite a few moments in this where you're like, oh, he's actually showing some emotion. Yeah, there's almost there's almost some growth that happens. Even as much as you hate Brandon Call, uh, his interaction with that kid is super funny. Especially when he's telling him not to smoke, not to cuss, as he's oh, doing he, all those things. When he puts when he puts in that cigarette, it's, <laughs> it's pretty funny. That's the best thing Brandon Call ever did was put a cigarette in his mouth. Yeah, no, it's. Uh, I mean, this is through and through an Andrew Dice Clay film, and I would say even if you weren't a big fan of his stand up, you you would. I think you would like him in this because it is a toned down version of his stand up. Yeah, he's not going full tilt, and so if you're if you don't dig a stand-up, this is like again a little. I would say probably a little bit more friendlier for you. Now, some of the jokes are trying to go for it. Like there's like a Dick Tracy joke in it. That's you know that's that works. But yeah, I think you're right. Like it's not. This isn't Andrew Dice Clay up on stage at Madison Square Garden. No, and there, there's a there's a lot more charm that he's bringing to this character a little bit more heart uh, and it comes up in these spots. And, and again, you, you may not get that in the first go round because you're distracted by the koala, the, uh, the Robert England hijinks. And, and I'm telling you every five minutes, this thing Sl- is saying the sleaze bag yeah, showing up every once in a while. Yep. It's, it's show it's just throwing everything at you every 10 minutes. Just when you think you've seen it, it's like, well, here's this new character in this new situation, but through and through, I, I mean, I really like this Ford Fairlane character, and I think there's actually some character progression that happens, which 
I, I never expect, but every time I watch it, I'm like, dude, where he starts versus where he ends at the beginning of the film. It's different. Yeah. It's there's like a hero's journey to this film. <laughs> there is. It's crazy. Uh, what about, what about Wayne Newton? Great bad guy. Um, you know, the only other film I have referenced for Wayne Newton, because believe it or not, not a huge Wayne Newton fan is uh Vegas vacation. And he's also the villain in that. Um, so he's a good, he's a pretty good villain. I will give it up to Wayne Newton. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's it's pretty one note, but he does sleaze really well. Yeah, he's well. a very good sleaze ball. Yeah, I like it. Uh, Robert England, who if <laughs> here's what I here's what I don't understand, like why the Razzies didn't hand out award for worst British accent that year because he would have oh, won yeah. hands down. Hello, hello. <laughs> makes, yeah, it makes your British accent look spot on. I know, um, but I like the the running joke through the whole thing that he's kind of like the wily coyote of hitmen where, I mean, he just takes a beating and they keep going with it. And I love the final showdown um, of him and Andrew Dice Clay, you know, when the dust settles, spoiler alert, Wayne Newton's gone. Right. Mm -hmm. And then he shows up for one last time and uh, Andrew Dice Clay convinces him to like drop the gun and go mano a mano <laughs> and then makes fun of him over it. Um, it's a great payoff. It's, it's a, it's a cool joke at the end. Um, he gets his ring. Yes. He gets his ring. Gilbert Godfrey, which only has what three or four minutes in this film, maybe five or something. Very good shock jock. Uh, I could see Gilbert Godfrey being a great shock jock. Yeah. My sense like that, why they wanted, uh, uh, Howard Stern, Howard Stern. Yeah. I, yeah, but I'm glad they went with Gilbert over Howard. Yeah, because he would have been like, oh, that's Howard Stern. Here it's, he's, you know, Johnny the Crunch or Johnny Crunch. Yeah, and it's more in your face. I, I love his answering machine where he's like, hey, is this, is this Chevy Nova? <laughs> <laughs> he keeps calling him Suzuki Samurai. <laughs> Everything. Suzuki, I want to see that movie. Yeah. Uh, the the person that I I think is brilliant in this film and in, in his little bit part is Ed O'Neill. Oh, Ed O'Neill pretty much steals the show you will sing booty time after you're done watching this film for days love and it. he makes it it makes the anus joke because you have to it's yeah. right there oh i agree but he's I, ed o'neill is super underappreciated for an actor i mean i know a lot of people know him from married with children but it's just these little bit parts that he shows up in that man he's he's really good Really this funny. in Wayne's world like convinced me that he is much better at comedy than people give him credit for. That part in Wayne's world and this are basically the same thing in a way. So yeah, but I love I love how excited he gets when uh, Morris Day comes up and he's like, "Hey, were you singing Booty Time or what?" He's like, "To me, that's <laughs> that is the only white man's disco." <laughs> so yeah. He's so excited over it. He's like, "I, t- I got a ton more to that." And again, another great mustache. Yes, absolutely. Um, Lauren Holly, I think you mentioned a little bit. Um, I mean, she is wow. the Dennis Dunn um, character in this film. If we're if we're doing a big trouble in Little China show, yes, uh, I really again enjoyed everything she does. She in her career has had to put up with Jim Carrey and Andrew Dice Clay in films. God, yeah, she needs she needs an award just for that. Yeah. Um. So the only. I would say performance that when I talk with people about this film, there, there's one performance that people don't like. 
Maddie Corman. Maddie Corman is Zuzu. And uh, she has, I mean, her character calls for this dumb groupie stereotype. I mean, what did you think of her? I, I can see how people would find that annoying, but that's the character she's trying to play. I mean, she's a groupie, like California girl sort of deal. Like, I get it, but she does, her voice can be a little grating. Oh, me. really? Yeah, I, I actually find her quite funny through the whole thing. She does have her moments, and I, I think there are moments where it, it kind of pulls me back the other way where I can forgive all the other stuff because she does have some pretty cool moments. Uh, the purse gag and stuff like that. Yeah, I, lo- I love her introduction when he shows the picture of her and says, you know, have you seen this girl? And she's like, is that, is that a trick question? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, I think one of the things that makes this film work is just all those names we listed everybody works so well together and I'm surprised with that type of ensemble in each of the scenes, because it's, it's basically Andrew Dice Clay interacting with all of these different personalities, mm-hmm. the, the comedy bits and the timing, they work really well. Yeah. But they sold this as like Andrew Dice Clay period. I don't know if they sold it as like this ensemble piece that has like a ridiculous cast. Yeah. If you, if you look at the actual regular theatrical poster, I mean, it has Andrew Dice Clay, just standing on it. And then it almost looks like a disaster film poster. If you remember how they would do the boxes of all the people that are in it at the bottom. Oh yeah. So, uh, I, I agree with you. I think though, that was a really smart move from a filmmaking perspective. So if you're Rennie Harlan or you're the screenwriter, Joel Silver, whoever, if you're going to put Andrew Dice Clay in his debut film as the Dice man, it's going to work better if you surround him with really talented actors and actresses, especially with good comedic timing. And mm-hmm. I, th- I think yeah. again, that's part of the secret sauce here. It's not just the arrogance and the, and the confidence and that quality that Andrew Dice Clay brings to the table, but it really is how he interacts with this diverse group of actors and it pulls off big time. Yeah. I will tell you the one scene I don't think I enjoy very much at all. It's the him getting into the studio and, and, and singing. Clearly not him singing is, I guess, why I don't really like it. So I wrote that down. I, was, I had that question. Out of nowhere comes this, I don't know, music montage where he's mm-hmm. doing this number. And it, it's supposed to be rock and roll, but it comes off like a spruced up lounge number from Vegas. It's the kind of song that you would expect to be on Bruce Willis's album, The Return of Bruno. Yeah. Is it Billy Joel? Is that a Billy Joel song? It, it, I don't know. Oh, I don't know. Um, I love that they just stick that in there. But my notes were Brad's probably hating this part. Yeah, I hate, I hate that part. I fast forward it every time. Are you fast forward it? Yeah. It goes on a little too long, too. Like It's like a three to four minute scene where he's trying to teach this kid how to sing and clearly not Andrew Dice Clay singing, but Kyle I, Troy, I is, huh? Kyle Troy. Yeah. Yeah. That, <laughs> I catch it. that, that guy looked like a serial killer in my opinion. Yep. If you go on his IMDB page and you look at his pictures too, ridiculous. Oh yeah. I'll have to check that out. Yeah. He looks ridiculous. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if it's critic proof, but I can say, I don't think critics who dismiss this film just as something like stupid misogynistic comedy really get it. 
Uh, I think it's, I think it actually is a really good film noir parody. Um, I, Andrew Dice Clay is fun to watch in the film. <laughs> now that you say that, I'm so mad that I never connected. How could you not get that, man? I, I know. I know. I don't know. I need uh, to watch the Maltese Falcon like four more times to, you know, really, really hammer it home. As many film noir movies I know, as you've I know. Seen, I'm like, I feel like I should give my card up. All right. Well, I, I mean, I don't, I, I think there is so much right about this film from a filmmaking mm-hmm. perspective. It's, it's not one of those dumb films with a bunch of dumb jokes. Uh, I, I actually think there's a lot of class and good filmmaking in this thing. I think it's one of Rennie Harlan's best films that he's made, to be quite honest. I think so, too. And I think it's way better than it has any right to be. Yeah, it even has that Rennie Harlan trademark um, dolls hanging from something. Like in Cliffhanger, you saw the special uh, effects. They do yeah. that at the side of the building where if you pay close attention, it's just three dolls attached to each other. You didn't. You don't. You didn't pick up. No, on that? I. I just don't know why he does that. Mm. I don't know either. Does Rennie need a hug? I guess. Um, or something. What else do you have on this one? Oh. Uh, I'm, I'm, can, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, we we you suck it. Huh? Sorry. Jimmy's <laughs> breath. You go from Sorry. like zero to a hundred on that one. Well, yeah. Uh, well, we we did take all of the information that we gathered about this film. And we put it in our uh, Robo Reviewer 1000. Should we fire that thing up? Yeah, actually, I think uh, she had her feminist button switched on. So this might have a little bit of a political tinge to it. All right. Well, um, let's get it started. And I think. Did you, put the, did you put the two quarters in it? Sometimes you have to pay it to work. Too. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I okay. put the 50 cents in. Okay. okay. Here we, here we this go. This is Robo Reviewer 1000. Reporting in for not a bomb. Here is my review of The Adventures of Ford Fairlane. The movie, released in 1990, is a comedy action film about a womanizing rock and roll detective named Ford Fairlane. While the movie has its entertaining moments, it is marred by sexist and misogynistic themes that make it challenging to watch from a feminist perspective. Throughout the film, women are objectified and reduced to their physical appearance, with their worth determined by their attractiveness to men. The female characters in the film exist primarily as sexual objects, with little depth or agency. Ford Fairlane's character, in particular, engages in inappropriate and offensive behavior towards women, reinforcing negative and harmful gender stereotypes. Furthermore, the film perpetuates harmful stereotypes about gender and sexuality, with characters using homophobic slurs and making jokes at the expense of marginalized communities. In conclusion, while the adventures of Ford Fairlane may have been seen as a light-hearted and entertaining movie in its time, it fails to align with feminist values and perpetuates harmful and damaging stereotypes. It is a film that should be approached with caution and critical thought. Well, I, I, that, that was, man, I, I didn't expect that. I mean, you put the sometimes, data in, I guess. Yeah, I mean, you you put the data in, you get, you know, sometimes garbage in, garbage out, Troy. I do. Do you agree with that? I mean, that's that's artificial intelligence taking a uh, <clears throat> peculiar, peculiar. I can't talk to you. Your yeah. Um, that that's the politically I mean, correct view, I guess, of the film. It's it's not wrong in a way. Uh, we did slide past the fact that there are some gay slurs in this, but it's, you know, it's a Andrew Dice Clay film. What do you expect? Um, 
good. The Robo reviewer has a point, but I disagree. Okay. Well, I don't care what the data says. You don't care what the data says. I, yeah, that is not, I, I hope my employer never hears that. I, <laughs> I don't care fired. what the data says. <laughs> they would never get mad at me about my androgynized client impression. But if I said, I don't care what the data says, I would get fired in a heartbeat. You didn't even talk about the koala bear at all. Let's talk about the koala bear real quick. No, it's, the robo uh, reviewer didn't talk about the koala uh, bear. Why didn't you yeah. talk about the koala bear? I don't know. Mm. I don't know. That, nothing really to talk about the koala bear, except that there's a koala bear. It's really cool. I love at the end of the movie, he's wearing a neck brace too. So <laughs> <laughs> that's the great thing about Blu-ray. You see the little details um, of movies. And of course, when you're watching it, you know, I had to watch my DVD. I, I, for some reason, never upgraded to a Blu-ray. What is so. wrong with you? That is a movie. That's a movie that deserves a criterion release. In my opinion, uh, well, we get our own label, buddy. We'll, we'll do it. All right. Well, let's talk about a movie that probably does not deserve a criterion release brain smasher, a love story from 1993. Uh, when, when we said we were going to do Fort Fairlane and I'm like, you know what? That I've, I've never seen this film and it's directed by Albert Pune, which I'm kind of a fan of from a director perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can get a VHS copy of it in the U S but the only, very hard. yeah, the only Blu-ray release was a German edition. Apparently it's part of a cult classic selection over there. And uh, it's a really nice, um, media book. So it's, it's got a book inside of it about the film. You get the Blu-ray and the DVD and the print looks pretty good for, um, that film. I will tell you that somebody called the movie man on YouTube has uploaded that HD version. And that's the one that I watch. Oh, okay, cool. Well, it's written and directed by Albert Pune, uh, who unfortunately actually just recently passed in 2022. Yeah. And, and so not to to skip out on Pune here, but like that was a director. When I started listening to the gentleman's guide to midnight cinema, I would not have really gone out and watched Albert Pune beforehand. But when I started listening 14, 15 years ago, they championed directors like that. And I was like, Oh, I need to check out this guy. And you know, he's got the sword of the sorcerer and cyborg and nemesis, like so many films that I have loved. Um, sadly we did lose him this year. And I think he's very underrated and underappreciated in kind of outside of the circle that we run in. No, I agree. I I had known about him from the eighties, specifically growing up on the sword and the sorcerer. So for those who haven't seen it, it's pretty much a direct ripoff of Conan, the barbarian, uh, just on a slightly different budget. And, uh, yeah, much, much less (laughs) of a budget. And and that's the thing you got to remember about, uh, Albert Pune films is it's, I, I don't know if you would call it a micro budget, but they're definitely films that yeah. And Lee Horsley is not uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, if you will. Too no, but he has a better sword because his sword has three blades, and two of them can shoot out, yeah. right? Um, but yeah, I, I what's interesting is he would get some moderate budgets and do some amazing things with them. And I've always found him to be a director that probably his vision was greater than the money he was working with. And uh, mileage may vary on what he produces, but man, he, for a long time, was putting a lot of films out that are pretty amazing. So 
you've, you've you mentioned, start. Yeah, you've mentioned a few of them. The couple of the ones that I was going to mention. So Sword and the Sorcerer, 82, Cyborg in 89, which I think is the movie that most people have seen of his, Jean-Claude Van Damme. Mm-hmm. Um, he has a director's cut out there called Slinger. Uh, I don't know if that's part of the Shout Factory release. I picked I don't up think a, it is. Yeah, I, I picked up a copy of it when I met him in Louisville, Kentucky. I don't remember if you were there or not. I don't think I was because I've never met him. I would have if you know if I was there. Oh yeah, no, we had talked with him for a long time. He was he was super amazing. Um, he also did theatrically uh, the first version of Captain America in 1990. So when Andrew Dice Clay was working on Ford Fairlane, he was working on Captain America. Uh, followed that up with Nemesis in 92, which is amazing. The sequels, eh, you know. I I love Nemesis so hard. It's so good. Um, Brain Smasher Love Story was 93. But here's here's the thing. In 93, he had three movies come out. Uh, Brain Smasher, Nights, with Kathy Long, Chris Christopherson, and Lance Hendrickson. That is a really good film. You should check it out. It's very Not much as good as the next one you're going to talk about. What arcade? Arcade. Yeah, it's that one's fun. Yeah, I, I like. Nights. No, Nights is really good. Nights yeah. is really good. Uh, in this film, but like anytime a director puts out three films in one year, it kind of gives you an idea of like the speed that they do things and 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 the scale of what they do things as well. Yeah, I mean when he passed, uh, because he was one of those that. If, if you were a fan of his and you met him and his wife, they would talk with you on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. So I I actually just through social medias and, and stuff like that, we would exchange things every once in a while. Um, and he had been working on like two or three different projects to the end. So he has a bunch of films that are unfinished and was um, up to his days uh, working on that. The cast of this film, so it's Andrew Dice Clay, who is playing a character called Ed Malloy, which I mean, let's be honest. It's the, it's the dollar store Ford Fairlane. Um, yeah, it's it, in Portland, Portland, Oregon, Portland, Oregon. Yeah. Um, you've got Terry Hatcher as Samantha crane, which we've talked about her with the tango and cash episode. Mm-hmm. We have Deborah van Valkenburg, which again, we mentioned her way back on episode 10 when we, we reviewed streets of fire. Oh, that's right. Yeah. And there are two names, uh, sort of cult movie icons that show up in this film, Tim Thomerson and Brian James. And what's funny is we talked about Terry Hatcher and Tango and Cash. We also talked about Brian James and Tango and Cash. Mm -hmm. So he played the uh, British hitman, right? So this movie was released directly to video in 1993 by Vidmark Entertainment even though it was supposed to originally show in the theaters. Unfortunately, it only got a theatrical release in Brazil. Yep. So this was my first time watch, but you had seen this before, right? I had seen it before. Yeah. I was at one of those movie conventions, saw someone had a bootleg of that, probably that German print. Cause what I have is HD bought it, watched it. It was like, Oh my gosh, I'd never even heard of this. Oh, it's Albert Pune. And, you know, kind of sort of started falling in love with it then. So you're a big fan of this? <laughs> I hadn't seen it in a while. I, I do have quite the nostalgia for this thing. Uh, it's it's bonkers in a way. <laughs> yeah. I, 
I watched this before sitting down to rewatch Ford Fairlane. And as many times as I've seen Ford Fairlane, the first thing that came to mind was, okay, this is the film he did after Ford Fairlane. And it's pretty much a lower budget version of Ford Fairlane. They're very similar. Yes. It's weird. When we were talking about it, I was trying to compartmentalize which film was which one is like much more higher quality than the other, but there are scenes I'm like, wait, is that Ford Fairlane or is that this one? No, that was with Terry Hatcher. So it's brain smashing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the, I think the differentiating factor here is the budget, right? Cause it's a pune film. The other thing, and I don't know what you thought my initial reaction was Andrew Dice Clay doesn't have the confidence or swagger in this version that he had back in 1990. Yeah. It's weird. I noticed that in this too, he's playing off Terry Hatcher who, you know, Lauren as well. Like these women are gorgeous, but here, like he has zero confidence to essentially get with Terry Hatcher in this. It's really bizarre. He would go from that, misogynistic character in four years later, three years later kind of play the exact opposite. He's almost like timid in this. It's, it's weird. Um, yeah. I, he, and he that's not why you get Andrew Dice Clay to do things to be timid. Well, he had, he has that same persona. He just looks tired to me. It, it just looks like he's bored with it a little bit. Yeah. Uh, you go from a $20 million Rennie Harlan film to an Albert Pune film probably made for 250 K if that. Yeah. I mean, there's no, there's no Joel silver money here. Um, it's, it's budget is very limited. It shows even when you get to the action sequences, you're like, Oh, that looks like a 16 year old John Stamos with a Ford Fairlane jacket trying to <laughs> hit people. That's, that's the beauty of Blu-ray. You see all the yeah. faults, right? Yeah, there's like a 10 minute like sitcom scene with his parents in their apartment, which to me is almost like the best part of the film. Yeah, uh, I love the interplay between him and his parents. It, it's it's crazy. So the action persona brain smasher stuff was OK. It, it's it's an OK film, but I enjoyed more of the moments that were truly designed as comedic moments like that whole exchange with his parents and stuff. Yeah, it's it's weird. Also, they break the fourth wall in Brain Smasher almost immediately, and like I guess he's supposed to be narrating this. Yeah, it's um, it's another film noir. Hard to, I mean, mm-hmm. Pune leans really heavy into that hard boiled detective genre with the Brian James and Tim Thomerson uh, sequence where they're yeah. trying to recreate a police station out of a broom closet. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so it's, it is very much again, why I equate it to like Ford Fairlane. It's just a cheaper version of Ford Fairlane. And it's trying to play in that same sandbox of, Hey, here's, here's your, your detective film. Yeah. And they're also Troy, just to let you know, in case you didn't know, they are not ninjas in this film. (laughs) There, there was, there was one fun. So it's another one where. If you're drinking in Ford Fairlane, every time they say rock and roll detective, if you were to drink every time they say ninjas in this film, again, you'd probably have alcohol poisoning. You'd die. 
I did like that one line that the head ninja, whatever, said that he didn't want to be a thug all of his life. He has goals and plans, too. <laughs> <laughs> I, th- I thought it was kind of funny. But no, it's it's the same thing. It's, hey, here's a bunch of wacky villains and characters that they're going to throw at it. And it's, um, it, it's Ford Fairlane and a girl running from everything and trying to figure stuff out, right? Yeah. Uh talking about a $10,000 watch and who in their right mind would spend $10,000 on a watch. That's a running gag. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, this one, this one's a little tough for me because I just, it's got that cheesiness to it that I, that I like when the, when the monks, sorry, they're not ninjas. When the monks jump, they have like this nice float to them. Uh, the one guy can catch bullets until he can't. Um, it's, kind of dumb. I don't want to say kind of dumb. It's dumb. And I, I, I wish age of dice clay was a little bit more enthusiastic in this role, because I think this could really be a nice cult film. I agree. Like a, yeah. If, but if, he just looks tired and he's kind of out of shape to be a bouncer. It's, it's everything about him is wrong. Yeah. His, his persona is, incredibly muted in this film. So I, here's the thing. I, I don't want to like crap all over it. It, if you walk in knowing what it is, it's a pune film, take it for what it is. It's kind of fun. I agree with you. Uh, but it's no Ford Fairlane. And the reason why it's not, why it isn't a Ford Fairlane in terms of quality isn't because of the budget, but it's because Andrew Dice Clay just doesn't seem like he's in this brain smasher character. Yeah, he owns the Ford Fairlane character, does not own the brain smasher character, the the Ed Malloy um, at all. And I think when you watch these together, it's a very good contrast to what could have been on Ford Fairlane. If he didn't give you what he gave, it could be brain smasher. And you'd be like, God, this guy's just kind of a zombie walking through this film. No enthusiasm. But he goes for it in Ford Fairlane here, not the case. And you can see the difference. Yeah. And Terry Hatcher is good in it. Yeah. I I actually, I actually think Terry Hatcher kind of carries this film to a certain degree because she kind of has to. Yeah. Well, she is in it. She is showing that enthusiasm. Um, She has a little bit more intonation. Isn't flat in her delivery. uh, Has a couple of comedic moments that are really good, but there's an energy with Terry Hatcher that I I think is elevated because she's she's not getting it from Andrew Dice Clay. Mm-hmm. So I I would be curious what his thoughts would be on this one if he just said okay somebody gives him a script and and I guarantee you know Andrew Dice Clay is a pretty smart guy he may look at this and go yeah I can take the money but I'm pretty much doing the same character that I did three years ago and he might just be bored with it. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure for Ford Fairlane, he probably got a million dollars here. He probably got 57, 50 K and had to be fine with that. And that's kind of, you got the effort based on what he was paid. I'm guessing. Yeah. Now there is one aspect of this film <laughs> that I, I have to complain about. Uh Oh, um, there, there is one thing that is absolutely, absolutely terrible. Just terrible. That song? It's the music. (laughs) Specifically, a couple of songs done by Madeline Von Ritz. 
Whoa. Yeah. So she does a couple of songs in this film. And I, I can't remember. I think it's the first song you'll hear from her is when Terry Hatcher goes into the nightclub. And you the only way I can describe it is imagine country line dancing gone terribly wrong with some of the shittiest music, goth music, whatever you've ever heard. Uh, and, and it's bonkers. And I, I mean bonkers not in a good way. It's like the most D-level Pat Benatar you can imagine. So when Ford makes the comment in Ford Fairlane about listening to Zuzu Pedal's voice and masturbating with the cheese grater. Grater. <laughs> yeah, that's what I feel like when I hear the songs out of this film done by Madeline Von Ritz. Terrible. And I went back to look like, who is this woman what else has she done? If you contribute to our Patreon you, and we get to the highest level, Troy will masturbate with a cheese grater. <laughs> <laughs> no. Well, uh, if I had to go to her concert for like yeah. an hour versus I would probably choose the cheese grater. Yes. But um, if you go look at her IMDb credit, she's been in a couple films. She did a song for cruising in 1980 called When I Close My Eyes, I See Blood. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, she's got a couple now of film I'm, credits. I have to now. No, I have to no, go back. No, and, no, don't, don't, don't do it. She's terrible. I'm just Absolutely curious terrible. Now I don't remember that in cruise. Don't let that. Don't let that curiosity. I know. Give you a headache. Okay. But but yes, it is by far the worst part in Brain Smasher, and it's not even close. Look, like 150. Man isn't great in this, but he is a hundred times better than the music. That may be why he just looks like the life is drained out of him in some sequences is because he had to listen to that shitty music. Uh, I, it's been 150 episodes. I'm going to call it right now. Out of 150 episodes, this is the worst music I have heard in all of the films we've talked about. Worse than the Serenity theme song. Yes. Like the Serenity theme song for the TV show is Oscar award winning. Freaking terrible. But I'm telling you, if there was an album called Music to Commit Suicide by, Madeline Von Ritz would own every track on it. Oh, okay. Freaking terrible. Terrible. I'll make sure not to tag her in this episode so she can't find it. Uh, okay. Yeah. I just, I, I mean, if you, <laughs> if I'm in a maternity ward and this music's playing, I'm punching babies. It's mm. terrible. Terrible. Okay. Um, what else about Brain Smasher? Um, like I said, it's uh, it's really difficult to get your hands on. I don't know if you haven't seen it, if it's really worth checking out. It's on YouTube. You can find it on YouTube. Um, but I enjoy it for what it is. It's It's got some halfway decent action set pieces. Uh, you know, the hallway scene in this one is a little less good than like, say old boy, but you know, it's up there. <laughs> if if yeah, well, they're throwing each other through cardboard doors. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, but it, it's one of those 88 minute films that if you just kind of have it on in the background, the story's not too complicated and they do kind of the same scenes a lot where they're together the monks show up. They have to escape. They calm down for a little bit. Monks show back up. They got to escape. Um, it's rinse and repeat quite a bit. It is a lot of rinse and repeat on that. But I, you know, I have a, I have a soft spot for the dice man. Yeah. I just wish he showed up for this one. Yeah. 
if I take off my shirt, it'll be a hot on. <laughs> um, yeah, and he, good boy. Like, he looks okay in Fort Fairlane, and this one. I think oh, it looks great looking, in Fort Fairlane. He's looking rough in this one. Well, yeah, I, he just looks tired. He just yeah. looks tired. Uh, okay, well, let's let's talk about these two films. So, The Adventures of Fort Fairlane, would you consider that one a bomb? Absolutely not. Okay. I love Ford Fairlane. I agree with you hundred percent. If, yeah. and if for those who haven't seen it, I actually think it's worth going back and looking at it. I know you may look at that and say, Whoa, that Andrew Dice Clay guy. I, I know about the controversy and stuff like that, but do a little research going in. And, and even if you don't, I think you're going to get a different character than what you're expecting with him. And I, I actually think he's really good in this. Uh, I, I think this would be the movie that you would go, dude, the guy can act and he can do it really well. That's the one part of Ebert's review. I would agree with. He's really good in this film. I disagree with Ebert on everything else. Okay. So brain smasher, a love story. Would you, where would you place this one? Uh, if you wanted to get this, uh, I'm going to say it's not a bomb as well. Uh, I will agree with you marginally. Yeah. Out, it, yeah. Outside of them. Yeah. It's, it is close. I, I, the, the fact that it's a short runtime, the fact that there still is some Andrew Dice Clay there, uh, Terry Hatcher, I think, carries the film. If they had one more Madeline Von Ritz song in there, it would, <laughs> I would actually not give my Blu-ray away. I would go buy all the copies out there and burn them, or burying them with like the ET Atari cartridges or something in that landfill. Um, but yeah, if you if you can get through the Madeline Von Ritz soundtrack aspect of it. It's a it's a halfway decent fun Albert Pune film, but just know what you're getting, right? Yeah, it's it's C level, C C minus level action film. Yep. Yeah, I agree with that. And they're not ninjas. They're not ninjas. Yes. Uh we got some listener feedback, a couple things. Oh, okay. All right. This is surprise to me. So here we go. Okay. Well, this one's from Matt. Uh he is one of the hosts at the Mix Tape podcast. He sent a message over. Uh, this is what he sent. He said, damn, you guys have me wanting to get that vinegar syndrome edition of drop dead Fred. I have some stories about it, but we plan on covering it on the mixtape at some point. I think watching it as an older version of yourself would change the perspective on it. Like it did for Troy. Uh, and then he put in parentheses, if Brad is the one reading this, or should I say Chris Evans? Uh, so, <laughs> yeah. Hey! So I am interested in suck it up. <laughs> Chris Evans, I fucked him. <laughs> that what he always says. Uh, so I'm interested in giving this another rewatch since it's been a while since my last viewing. Yes, Matt, go watch it. I'm I'm curious for everybody who, if you had one thought about that film when you saw it at a younger age and you revisit it now, would you pick up on things that you didn't? I told you all of our British listeners would come out of the woodwork for that film. Good Lord. Oh yeah. Let's talk about that. So I want to, I want to call a attention to a couple of people, specifically Matt and Kevin. So on our socials, as soon as this released and we were talking about Rick uh, mail, they flooded us with recommendations. And so specifically, and I, I just want to share this for people who don't follow us on social media if you I mean, like, what are you doing? Not following. Us? I, I agree, but, but look, for our once a week posts. Yes. <laughs> if, if you're interested in Rick mail now, again, I only knew him from the young ones and I will go back and, and watch that on a regular basis. 
but they also suggested to go and catch Filthy Rich and Cat Flap, Best of Bottom, Guest House Paradiso, Bad News, and The Dangerous Brothers. So if you want to see clips of this stuff, they actually not only recommended it, but they were putting like YouTube clips of things from these shows with Rick Mayo on it. The Dangerous Brothers is what they call you and me. Yeah. Oy. Hey. Uh, yeah. So thank you, Mike and Kevin, for those recommendations. And uh, thank you for, I don't know, just adding to my list of things I got to go back and watch, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what else, Brad? That's all I had on my end. Next week? Oh, yeah. We're still doing this? We are still doing this. Yes. <laughs> yes. What is next week? This is your pick, right? It is. Um, a little little known fact. Um, I was obsessed with HBO growing up. We had it from the day I can remember being in my parents' house and being in the basement. And a film I remember watching, oh my gosh, probably, I've seen it probably a thousand times. It is the 1992 fantasy comedy starring the one the only john ritter it is stay tuned Ooh, i, I saw this in the it theater it is the proto cabin in the woods proto cabin in the woods yeah. i don't think i i don't think i've watched this since i saw it in the theater oh wow yeah has, I, has pam dauber in it right from mork and mindy oh yeah yep, yep. okay she's the wife all right i'm super curious about this one my three sons of bitches <laughs> <laughs> god uh awesome uh I, i'm i'm kind of looking forward to that so i guess if you want to guess hear, how many guess how many channels came on the satellite at in 1992 no when they when he buys us they buy a satellite dish yeah there were 666 channels troy that's not a good sign brad no not a good sign yeah well if you want to hear more of us, we're actually going to be all over the place. I think, uh, I just did an episode you more than me. Okay. <laughs> well, we, we got asked to go over to the Backlook cinema podcast and Brad actually had something come up, um, and couldn't get away. So I, I did a loner and went over there and talked about, oh. <laughs> <laughs> you just can't help yourself. Can you? <laughs> Sorry. Well, we got we got asked to go talk about Jackie Chan, and I did. Uh, I was so upset because you and I had talked about Rumble in the Bronx like the week leading up to that, and I had watched it. And goddamn, Troy, guess what? What Rumble in the Bronx is pretty fucking good. Yes, it's really good. Uh, I won't tell you my thoughts about it, but yeah, I got I got to tell you, I I felt bad because I was just doing an information dump on Zoe on his podcast. But yeah, we talked rumble in the Bronx and I think that one's going to release the same week that this episode is going to be out there. So if you want to hear me talk about Jackie Chan with the most amazing Zoe, check out the Backlook cinema podcast. And then the other thing is we're supposed to record a new episode of breaking Brad this week, right? We are. Yeah. What are we watching? The BC Butcher, it is a trauma film. Ooh, you're one of your favorites, isn't it? Yep. Yes, we will have some folks over Lloyd from... Kaufman is my mortal enemy. And you were like five feet away from him a few months ago. I know. I almost punched him. No, he's actually <laughs> a super nice guy. He's amazing. He is amazing. Uh, yeah, we're going to have some guests show up from Night of the Living podcast because they're the ones that picked 
this film, they they think they they finally found the one to break you. So we're gonna find out. I'm watching it literally after we record this. Oh wow, you're not gonna talk to me for like a week. <laughs> yeah, I, had have to, to I couldn't do it before this because I would I would have yeah. Uh Sammy and I watched it together, oh my gosh, at the beginning of the month. It's only an hour long, so I'm probably gonna go watch it again before we record. Uh take those copious notes. I know. Okay, Brad, who else should they be listening to outside of the Backlook Cinema podcast and us, of course? Yeah, that's the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema. Watch Skip Plus the VHS files, which rumor has it that we might be showing up on theirs for The Last Dragon. So if that does drop sometime soon, we will let you know. Uh, Night of the Living podcast and the Mixtape podcast as well. Yeah. So check out all of our friends. Look podcasting is hard there's a lot of stuff out there i agree uh and thanks everybody for all the recommendations we still get a ton of film i mean the list keeps growing we've got honestly we have enough films to keep going for like of what's on the list right now is like another three years oh easily yes if we were doing this you know a week but if anybody hollywood tends to release bombs every week We got a bunch from this year. I, I know towards the end of the year, we tend to talk about some of our favorite movie bombs from the same year. We're going to have a lot to choose from, which is crazy because everybody's going to see the Mario Brothers movie and they're not watching anything else. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but if somebody wants to contribute to the ever-growing list, how do they do that? Yeah, that's not a bomb, not a bomb pod at gmail.com. You can also head over to notabombpodcast.com and hit the contact us button, or you can go on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Cool. Well, there you go. Fort Fairlane brain smasher. I'm kind of disappointed. You didn't do as many impersonations as I thought you would. My throat hurts. Oh, <laughs> wonder why yeah. um, you were trying to get concert tickets. Weren't you? <laughs> There's a little callback to that scene. Yep. Oh, I yep, forgot yep. to tell you. So Cameron watched it with me and he, he actually enjoyed it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I was kind of, I was kind of curious, like take some, a teenager if they looked at it because we just had that discussion of people being, you know, sensitive. I think he got the humor and yeah. he, he recognized like, yeah, I don't think you can say that today. And it's like, yeah, but I mean, it, it is what it is, right? It is what it is. Yeah. But yeah. he, he thoroughly enjoyed it. He had a lot of fun and we were actually quoting a lot of it today too. So. It's uh, it's a winner, folks. Trust us. Okay. I don't know if you're listening in the morning, the afternoon, or evening. Thanks for hanging around and listening to us talk about Ford Fairlane and Brain Smasher. Join us next week when we're going to stay in the 90s, because apparently that's the decade we like this year. And we're going to talk about Stay Tuned. So you stay tuned and find out what we think. See you then. Hey, <laughs>